0: well hi once again listeners this is mark griffin director of customer solutions here at constructs we are a team of software engineering experts led by legendary author steve mcconnell here we believe every software team can be more successful at delivering higher levels of business value in each episode, we talk with one of our consultants exploring one of our different types of engagements. We describe the issues that those engagements were designed to address and how we solve them. And in some episodes like this one, we're gonna discuss issues or techniques that are common uh, or, or helpful in those different engagements. So today we're joined again, once again, by senior fellow Eric Simmons from beautiful downtown Beaverton, Oregon, actually from an idyllic background garden setting nearby. right? Yeah, pretty much today.
1: It's a wet setting. We've got some welcome August rain So I'm in. Yeah, we do but- too.
0: We do too. You know, it, um, I heard my irrigation system go off at 430 this morning and I was awake and I said, well, I want to, should, I should run down and turn it off because I know the rain is coming. And of course we have a nice, I, w- I have what you call a farmer's rain going on right now. It's nice and clean and like it's just a couple of steps past drizzle. So, yeah. you know, I think most of the rest of the weather country looks at the the national weather map and sees this dot up in the pacific northwest and says someday they're going to fix those sensors (laughs) (laughs) because it's like everybody else is in the 90s and here we are at 61 today there you go so it is it is bizarre so today we're going to explore a topic that has generated a lot of discussion with our clients and it's related to their desire to set clear business and organizational objectives and to track progress against them Um, You might recall, listeners, that Eric and I spoke at length in an earlier podcast about metrics, and and I would encourage you to seek that episode out. It's not a a prereq for this episode, but it's a good background to build upon. Uh, In that prior episode, we discussed metrics versus indicators and how to launch a metrics program and how to monitor it. But today, we're going to jump into something that that connects quite nicely to those concepts, and that's uh, something we're going to call the landing zone, which I joke sounds like a cheap bar at a small airport. So Eric, let's dive right in.
1: What is a landing zone, first of all? Oh, it's a cheap bar at a small airport. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, we're done. Um, we're done here. <laughs> yeah, simplest thing. Yeah. So what a landing zone is is a table that we use to define success in a quantified, explicit way, and we can do this for a project or a product or some other things like that. So it's a, it's an explicit success definition that's quantified. And it's interesting uh, you, your remarks are, are accurate up front. We, we work with a lot of people, and it's common to encounter teams with really no explicit definition of success for how they'll be evaluated at the end of the year as, a, as an organization or as a project. They might have some requirements. They might have some expectations expressed from stakeholders, but they really don't have much more than that.
0: Yeah, you know we we talk we we joke a lot about about it, uh, being so heavily involved in in engineering practices here that we suffer um, significantly sometimes from the curse of knowledge. Right? We 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 think everybody does this, and it turns out there's not a whole lot of people that actually do some of this stuff. So, I mean, how long have these landing zone this landing zone concept been around?
1: Yeah, it's been a while. Let's say late last century, because the I first now I aware feel old. Of this. That's right. I first became aware of this when I joined Intel in late 1999, and there were some proponents of this concept uh, trying to spread it there. And they coupled with me quite quickly because of the requirements engineering work I was doing at that time. And some of the things I brought in in those methods were kind of like the final ingredient to make this landing zone thing work. So uh, it's interesting that this began at Intel because the OKR culture, the objectives and key results that Grove invented, had been going on there for many years, quite happily. And as you and I have joked before, my time there, 17 years, it, OKRs at Intel are like breathing. No one really has right. to think much about doing it because the culture grew up doing it. There's nothing strange or difficult about it. very natural. But even in that setting, in an opt-in kind of culture... Uh, landing zones became very popular very quickly, and that caught my attention obviously, and I've been a proponent ever since. Cool. So I mean it, the,
0: the name the name you're talking about here really is a it, it is a metaphor, right? It's, it's
1: it is yeah, and and the two guys who created it uh, borrowed it from the the notion where if you're trying to land a helicopter or a spacecraft in a particular area, then that's called the landing zone. And, and if, you've, if you land inside the LZ, then the mission is successful. If you're outside, it's a failure. So Mars probes or helicopter rides, uh, hospital helicopters, things like that, you know, you're going to set up a landing zone near a crash scene for the helicopter to safely land. Makes sense.
0: So, so, so this idea of a landing zone is really a region, right? It's not a not a single data point. That's the big. I think that's probably the big thing to think about here, right?
1: It is a big deal, and that's why the that metaphoric name makes some sense because uh, the landing zone for a helicopter is really two dimensional. And in project sense, the success of a project is going to have more than a couple of dimensions. In fact, they aren't even physical dimensions. So we end up with a sort of multi-attribute region that is, that defines success, at least in the metaphoric sense, not a physical space. Okay. Okay. And then in that, in this table, the rows of the table contain the attributes for success. And then the columns contain a range of performance for each of these attributes in the rows. So in a default sense, the typical landing zone has three performance levels for every performance attribute. There's a minimum, a target, and an outstanding level for this. So the minimum level reflects that level we have to achieve to avoid some sort of a failure. If we don't reach minimum, we fail. We're outside the landing zone. The target is somewhere closer to the center, where we're well away from the edges, and we think we can achieve this. Uh, And then the outstanding is a value that we think we could reach if everything went perfectly so it's a feasible thing to do but everything would have to get perfectly done in order to reach that level
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense I and mean, it's yeah, so, so really in effect you, what you're talking about a project or a product has to land has to land to be successful somewhere in the matrix
1: right it's that that same metaphor in is successful out is unsuccessful and there's a pretty clear delineation there
0: that makes sense makes
1: and sense. i think it's important to have this area this range because it's quite easy in today's complex environment to over-constrain our desires and our product definitions, and we end up stipulating something that wouldn't it be nice if it, were, if it were actually possible to guarantee that. And we get people so closely and carefully aligned on a point of success that is almost impossible to achieve, that anything but that point is viewed as failure, when in fact, it, it isn't. It's just a slightly different version of success. Totally.
0: So, so what are what are some clear uses for landing zones?
1: Well, what people do with these, uh, primarily, first and foremost, is to create that definition of success for a project or a product, something like that, and to keep it current throughout the project's life. Because as we'll talk about probably later on, these things do change, right? It's not static. Uh, so the primary benefit, you've got a written down quantified definition of success that everybody can look at and either agree with or disagree with while it's inexpensive to change it, rather than finding out at the end of the thing that, oh, that's not what you thought success was, and now it's too late. Uh, So, and then beyond that, it defines success in a quantifiable way, and that's important because we don't just talk about better or fast. And knowing those quantified levels is a really good early input to things like risk analysis and feasibility determination. Even without knowing exactly what the performance has to be, by putting this range of acceptable performance in there, we can give people some idea of where this has got to go. And that lets them quite quickly come to ideas of what's risky and where we might have trouble reaching those levels. Hmm,
0: That makes sense. I mean, the quantifiable thing, I think, is a good is a good thing to think about, particularly. I, and I I get that fact that you you came from a long history of being involved in requirements work, and this makes me think about things like non-functional requirements, right? Where where yeah, you know, yeah, it's just that way of thinking about things it's just, they're hard to quantify necessarily,
1: right? And and I've been on a career-long vendetta to undo <laughs> the use of non-functional requirement because the joke has always been, well, what are those? All the things that don't work when you ship the system. (laughs) Those are the non-functional requirements. Totally, totally. So, yeah, we're naming something there by what it's not and that's kind of ludicrous. So, it means everything other than the functions. But what people almost always mean with that is things like quality and performance requirements. So, I I use the phrase quality and performance instead of that just to say it in the positive sense. But yes, if you're familiar with non-functional requirements, a lot of what goes into the landing zone tend to be those sort of quality and performance achievements because scope tends to be dealt with in things like requirements.
0: I get that. That makes a lot of sense. And so, yeah, I can think about this, like if I think about the arc of a project, right, there's, there, there are points in time where you're looking at bigger picture issues, right? So maybe things like in the design aspect, you could do something there with a landing zone. How would that work in in that, in that context?
1: Well, sure. Because once the, uh, Once the quantified levels are present, now we can use that in that initial assessment of risk and feasibility, but we can also use that as we go to help make trade-offs during design and construction. It's rare that a team encounters a project where they can just analyze their way to everything and ground truth is evident. So as you go, you're going to find out some of your assumptions were incorrect. Sometimes you might have been wrong in a good sense where it's like, oh, we can do better than that. Other times as wow, that's not even feasible at all. So these trade-offs that teams routinely have to make during design and, and construction can really be aided by the structure and the, the sort of space put in place by this landing zone. And sense. then it does one other thing because yeah. now that you're doing all this, if you keep your landing zone up to date and you mark it correctly, you can use it as a very clear status indicator to communicate where are we really today in terms of being successful at the end of the project. Because we, we would expect things to improve or change as we make these trade offs, And it's quite easy to demonstrate those uh, – the effects of those trade offs in the landing zone as you go. Perfect. So,
0: so- – you know, this, this thing called success, right? I mean, what do you think makes a good success definition when, when you're trying to apply that to landing zones?
1: Well, For that, I would probably go back to requirements again. And and one of the things that's true at the high level about requirements is that uh, we call it the three C's. The the requirements need to be clear, common, and coherent. And I think the success definition also needs to be clear, common, and coherent because both the requirements and the landing zone are essentially stipulations of what we want to be true in the future. So clear meaning that the definition we're doing here for success is unambiguous, and it's complete, and it's concise. And common means not only does everybody understand it, they all have the same understanding. And then coherent means that when you look at this, when you step back and look at it, it makes sense. There's a consistency here from a logical, holistic perspective.
0: Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the last, um, the last podcast we did with Steve McConnell on, on the key principles, um, from more effective agile. One of the things that we, we talked about was this notion of commander's intent, right? We're, yes. It was very similar. So in that context, you know, you're talking about someone who sets that direction clearly, who prioritizes the, the goals leading into that, and then lets the team run, run with it. So there's no ambiguity that everybody is clear on what the purpose is. Um, yeah. all, all stakeholders agree. that. So I think that's a really – those kind of – I think those concepts connect really well.
1: Yeah, I think three Cs is a very good way to characterize commander's intent because it needs to be that too. If you're going to have something that teams can act on autonomously – especially in the commander's intent sense when communication breaks down under the craziness of battle, then it's got to be three C's and probably a few other things too. Sure.
0: What are some of the biggest benefits of using a landing zone? What do you, what, you know, if you had, well, if you had like a top three or the, something, I don't know.
1: Well, I, I do, but one more thing on the, uh, the uh, good success definition, I wanted to say clear, comic, coherent. That's a great start. But one thing you won't see in doing landing zones is good success being prescribed by a set of particular attributes, like there's some uniform universal set of attributes. Techniques like balanced scorecard tend to stipulate what you should go off and measure in terms of the areas, if not the precise measurements. Landing zones don't do that. And you may find that certain things like time and money are frequent appearances in your landing zones, but it's going to be up to you from a good success definition perspective to define the scope of the landing zone and what actually goes in there or not, it's not going to be imposed upon you. Gotcha.
0: That's a good ad.
1: All right. So then benefits of all this. Um, It's interesting in a lot of the assessment work and we did, you and I did a a podcast long ago on, on organizational assessments. And in that work, we often hear two simultaneous complaints from different populations in the same organization First, when we talk to senior management, we get a complaint that the teams won't commit to anything, either, quote, because they're agile or some other such nonsense. They get they get a hard response from teams that say, no, we're not going to commit to your your crazy deadlines and your crazy goals. Uh, and I don't think that's realistic because upper management needs predictability and foresight. They've got to be able to make plans, uh, but in a responsible way, of course. Sure. The second complaint that we get comes from the individual contributors and the teams, and they complain that they don't have any autonomy, and they need to ask permission from upper management to do everything. And one of the things that makes me passionate about landing zones is that they fix both these problems at once. And it's one of the few things I've encountered that actually does that. So first off, uh, for the upper management folks, landing zones create very clear accountability and transparency. The, the quantitative, explicit definition of success here is something that really changes the game from a commitment standpoint, because the individuals and teams within the org all have to align to that landing zone. And if they disagree with something, they need to speak up because they're, they're signing up to deliver something inside that landing zone. So there's a very specific quantified commitment the team is making to upper management. And then secondarily, uh, the teams get something in return for that because the landing zone creates for them this success region. and That turns out to be the autonomous region in which they can move with total freedom. Any decision that that team or an individual in that team wants to make that keeps all rows of the landing zone in that minimum outstanding range is theirs to make. Because they are moving from one point in success to another point in success. And I don't need to escalate to ask to be successful if I'm already being successful. It just, you know, just do it. Sure. But anytime someone would want to make a decision that would require a divergence in even a single row of the landing zone outside that minimum outstanding range. Now, that very clearly has to be escalated because we're asking permission to go outside the landing zone to essentially ratify a change in shape to the landing zone and saying, look, we've got to expand it in this direction for this attribute because we can't achieve what we've asked for. Is that okay? Right. I mean, and and that's a healthy thing.
0: Sure. I mean, is, is that okay thing? That aligns again with another uh, thought I think uh, I had in terms of the, the idea of, of um, making it a, 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 an acceptable environment for people to, to escalate and not a hostile right. environment to do that, right? And that's back to yeah. your, you, you're big on the notion of organizational culture and, and the stuff that you do with assessments. And so uh, trying to feel that out and, you know, how acceptable is it for an individual to raise a concern like that? If you're having something in a landing zone that everybody already looked at originally and now you're outside of that and you're going to make a decision on it, then that should be that. that should be an acceptable escalation process, right?
1: Right. And, and what we want here is to escalate – all the things and only the things that need to be escalated. So we need that kind of crystal clear set of criteria, this escalation criteria that the landing zone creates that gives the team maximal room to work autonomously, but still makes very clear criteria in which you're going to have to escalate something because you've just stepped outside your decision authority. Sure.
0: I mean, you know, people waste a lot of time, you know, worrying about whether they should bring something up to their manager or to, or, or, you know, up that hierarchy chain, right? So having, having some way to eliminate that time wasting escalation, you know, yeah. brain freeze is probably a good idea.
1: Well, yeah. And in some cultures where there's a lot of blame and there's a lot of, uh, Organizational history, you get a lot of defensive escalation where you're just not going to make any decisions because you've been trained the sort of learned helplessness that we encounter in so many cultures, where they feel like they have to escalate everything because if they make a mistake, they just get creamed in response. Sure. So there again, the landing zone may at least reduce that to a bare minimum.
0: Well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, so let's roll up our sleeves a little bit and go a little deeper. Um, now that we've kind of established some of these things, what, what things are good to keep in mind when you set up your first landing zone? What kind of, what are the sort of the key swing thoughts you think about here?
1: One of the toughest things to master out of the gate as you start doing this is that you have to keep the landing zone short. And uh, as, you, as you focus on that, remember that landing zones define success, not scope. It's not necessary to put every possible thing into a landing zone that you might ever want to track. You and I discussed a little bit about the the goal question metric paradigm in the metrics podcast, and my joke was that the only alternative is metric, metric, metric. We (laughs) just measure ourselves to death because we don't know why we're measuring. I remember that. Yeah. and, And in this case, it's some of the same mentality that has to be in play because we aren't after the largest possible landing zone that we can afford to track. Uh, It has to be short enough to be comprehended at a glance. So like a single visual field, one page or screen where I can see in, in front of me at one time, all of these little hungry mouths that are wanting to be fed with time and money and resources. If I've got to scroll through five or six pages of things, I can't keep it all in my head. So a good heuristic here, never more than 24 rows. And and that's an exception. I would say that a dozen is much better. Eighteen if you have to, never more than twenty-four. So you're gonna feel some pressure to keep the landings on short, and you got to s- scope this thing in a way that that makes membership in the rows a big deal. Okay. Now I, I also can you express everything in twenty four rows? Well, of course not. Uh um, so what do you do when you're on a really big project? And I've been on some of those in my career at Intel. Well, one of the simple things to do would be to nest. Landing zones. You can use a hierarchical approach to take a row of a top-level landing zone that's maybe a component you have to develop. Right? If we're maybe you gotcha. we talk about uh, a game system, you've got this new idea. It's got hardware. It's got software. It's got titles in an ecosystem that we're selling from third-party people. So there's a gaming system out there, and maybe one of your uh, rows in the landing zone is the hardware system itself, and another one has a lot to do with ecosystem enabling. Well. Each of those rows could end up being nested down a level to the team that's making the hardware or that's doing the ecosystem enablement so that they can have a a richer description of that and still keep your top level landing zone to the dozen or two rows.
0: Yeah, I could see how that would work. I could see how you could drill down, and when when you needed to drill down and, and take a look at something under there. So, so right. I'm thinking about, you know, we 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 talked a little bit about the fact that you get something that's clearly uh, agreed to by all stakeholders and all people looking at a program or a project. So, so that that that's the, ask the obvious question: Who should participate in the discussion to create a landing zone for these things? What what's the kind of organizational structure you might have
1: participating? Well, it ends up being a very cross-functional effort because success we, – we, all right, so first off, we're in a setting where stakeholder groups – usually there's a dozen or two stakeholder groups, not people, but groups. Wow. And each of those can have dozens, right? Finance and legal and customers and, you know, you go on – anybody who sits down and spends some time listing out the stakeholder groups for what they're doing generally has no trouble coming up with a list of 12 to 24 groups. Uh, not all of them are the same importance. But even after you've gone through a prioritization exercise, you've got a lot of stakeholders. And those stakeholders are diverse. And some cases, we have a lot of specialists involved in this. So <laughs> I think cases. this yeah, there, there could be some really deep specialties involved in some of this, especially if you're in a regulated industry where your safety is involved or sometimes domains are just ridiculously complicated and complex by themselves. So you've got a lot of PhDs and and things working in this. Regardless, on any real project, you're likely to have the need for a lot of specialists based on wide-ranging diversity in in your stakeholder groups. So things like cost and reliability and performance always show up. So does user experience and in many cases, you're going to end up seeking out some specialists within that space.
0: Now, That just seems to make sense. I mean, how I, I think about the notion in in, a, in the simplest team level implementation of Agile, you have this this idea of a product owner, right? So, how does where would a product owner play in the in the in the, in the landing zone arena? Would that be a person that might negotiate changes to that downstream, or how does that? How does that work?
1: Yeah, it certainly could. Product owner, product manager. These people are often the owners who are responsible for the sort of care and feeding uh, of the landing zone itself. It's not that they are authorized to make every change willy-nilly and uh, king in court, but uh, having a point person to, to do that makes some sense. And in the Scrum Guide's definition of the product owner role, it's pretty consistent You know, in terms of being able to maximize the value value of the scrum team having a landing zone to help guide those judgments is not a bad thing and if you go above that a lot of times the product owners end up reporting to people in product management who are more outward facing talking to all these other stakeholder groups outside the organization and team they also can be really good at the care and feeding of this right
0: i I just think it makes makes good sense to have a person that's particularly responsible for that care and feeding right just having well
1: it is but It's rare that one mind would be able to do all this. When I first arrived at Intel in 99, I learned that they did things back then with at least a troika. And there was a strategic planner who was always kind of the equivalent of product management and product owner and and a few other things rolled into one body. But then there was also somebody from engineering involved from a technical perspective, and there was always someone from finance involved. And those people had teams supporting them. So these landing zones were generated, usually the strat planner was the one who ended up owning the landing zone. So it's kind of like product management there. But that person had some tremendously specialized and rich input into how to establish both the scope of the rows and what the minimum target and outstanding ought to be and how they should be measured.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, this is really a living, breathing environment, right? You don't want – it's not a static thing that people say, no, no,
1: no, we promised that, you know, you know, things, yeah. things change. Yeah, it, right? it can't be. Yeah. But that's – you know, we've – as an industry, I think we've come to grips with that over the last 20 years with the rise of Agile and, and all the rest of that is people realize that work today, especially when you get into these uh, – socio-technical systems where there's all kinds of people interacting with technology. We used to joke at Intel that laptops are just complicated. You can take them apart. There's a bill of materials, cell phones, same thing. But when you put several hundred thousand of these with people attached to them into this thing called the internet, then really interesting stuff happens. And it's far less predictable than what it might've been with a laptop on a table.
0: Yeah, that's, that's completely believable.
1: I mean, yeah, there's a great systems engineering, uh, book uh that that has an anecdote in it about how without its crew a fighter jet advanced as it may be only sits in a hangar quietly leaking (laughs) right so the device itself is is merely complicated but the system when you put people involved that gets pretty interesting and complex sure
0: so so on the next road of complexity here you know from we have this baseline landing zone with minimum target and outstanding uh, there have been some variants at teams that might find useful. So give me some examples of ways that organizations have added value to the idea of extending this I- idea of planning goods. You talked yeah. about hierarchy before there's, there's other things, right?
1: There's other things. Yeah. In 20 years of extensive use now that people have invented some things that can be at least situationally valuable. Um, three that come to mind here that are probably most common, most important. A lot of people put a now column next to outstanding. Because you talk about the desired range of achievement, minimum target and outstanding, the very next question most people have is, okay, where are we now? Are we somewhere south of minimum or are we up happily next to outstanding? So the now column, the now data point, gives you a chance to show where you are today, not just where you're hoping to be. Uh, so that one's useful.
0: And that's, and that's, that's again, probably an arrived... Uh, value right? You you have to have the team kind of agree to that, um, and, and you talk about this cross functional team continuing to monitor these things. That that would be a decision yeah. the team makes to say this is really where we are.
1: This is where we're at. Yeah, yeah. and and again, uh, if you're an agile crew, you have more chances to measure now with these sort of leading metrics and things like that than what you might have in a a more sequential environment. So you have to be able to do now updates at a frequency that matches what your stakeholders require, dependent teams on you and things like that. So, uh, for example, in silicon design, you're often trending on things like area and design cost, and the two things are directly linked. You know, More millimeters means more cost. So where are we now and what's the projected power and performance and the requirements of this? And what are we trimming to get costs down to where we need to be? Those were very important discussions and having that updated on a quick basis was important.
0: I can believe that. So how about some other ideas? What other things have you seen out there? Okay, besides now,
1: um, another one that's sadly useful Is the kill switch idea now? Kill switch. (laughs) Sadly, correct. That's that's sadly useful. It's (laughs) it comes from the kill switch that's on all terrain vehicles. Which uh, there's a pin that attaches via a cable to your wrist, so that if you become detached from said all terrain vehicle, the pin comes out with you and the engine dies, so the thing just doesn't run off down the beach, hitting several seals and innocent (laughs) bystanders because you're no longer guiding it.
0: So, nice visual,
1: thank you. The kill switch level—something uh, <laughs> I witnessed in my past. Oh, I was gross. not involved in the ATV; I was just watching at a distance. Yeah, but yeah, the uh, the kill switch resides below, to the left of the minimum. And what you're saying is, you are so far from minimum, trending in the wrong direction that it's time to have a conversation about whether we should just kill this project because we don't see any feasible way to recover in this dimension. It could be release date. It could be price or manufacturing cost. It could be whatever it is, quality. All these things could end up being such a challenge going the wrong direction that at some level you want to say, let's talk. And so the kill switch is something which, again, is sadly useful in, in projects today. <laughs> I'll bet. So, I
0: mean, I'm thinking about this thing—the complexity that, that might, you know, if someone has maybe a 24-row kind of thing, at some point in time, assigning assigning ownership to something is, might be helpful, right? Just from the from a you know a maintainability perspective, right?
1: Yeah, I, I like that's that's another one that is pretty common to add. I like your thinking there because you can see how these get to be pretty specialized these areas, and they can go f- across groups within a large project and into areas that are even cross-cutting for organizations because you've got a particular person who's a security wizard and is working with all kinds of teams. So having an owner column on the right after now is another thing that we see pretty frequently and, and pretty usefully. So if your organization is large enough where it makes sense to put a name on each landing zone item so this is the person to go talk to if you've got a question about how it's measured why it's there or whether or not there's any flexibility in those targets then that can be a, a good thing to add
0: that makes sense now, most of these um attributes we've been talking about here are are qualities of the product or project you know reliability cost or completion date. what about functions and constraints can they be in the landing zone if they're right. important
1: enough yeah, we joked about the non-functional stuff, and it's true. Right. Most of the things that end up showing up in a landing zone tend to be the quality and performance attributes because most people have other things like backlogs that would that would uh, capture your functionality for you and some design constraints. But occasionally, these things can rise to that level and the 12 to 24 row limit where something has to be in a landing zone, and there is a way to do that. Uh, What we end up doing most of the times is just putting in a single row for functions and constraints. Because what typically happens is that you have a kind of good, better, best scope. Uh, And this is kind of related to MVP. It's not the same thing, but you can say, look, we're just not even going to be in this fight in the marketplace unless we have these kinds of features, these particular set. So you can say, wow, that sounds like the MVP, and it kind of does. But here we're just talking about the things that are absolutely crucial for this thing to be successful, whether that's your MVP or MVP plus or minus, uh, up to you. Because, you know, we run into all kinds of different ways people interpret and define MVP out there, too. So the minimum row has one set of functions and constraints in it. The target usually has something in addition to that, and the outstanding yet more in addition to what the target was. So we frequently see people write, there's a minimum list, and then the target ends up being min plus, and the outstanding ends up being target plus. So, yeah, that, yeah, One example here, yeah. if, if we're talking about the operating system, uh, I think that the operating system is rarely something that would have to be in a landing zone, but it, it could show up. Uh, usually, operating system shows up in things like, what kind of market do you want to go after? Because they the, the operating system is dictated a lot by market or device, form factor, things like that. But right. uh, just for the purpose of example, we could have a minimum as Android, and we could say our target is min plus iOS. And then outstanding would be target plus, say, maybe Windows 10 and Mac OS because we're going to change form factors and get into bigger tablets and, and laptops.
0: Makes total sense. And it's a good way to think about it too, I think, is incrementally as you go across and, and Yeah. And the team can reach as far as the team thinks they can to, to to jump into that and it gives them a good it's a great way to be autonomous and say, you know, we if we just did this much more, we could have both of these things. You know, and sort, right. of, sort of an interesting thing. So, another
1: place you see that yeah. kind of a creative list is in things like uh, markets. I've got an example in a, a white paper on this topic about the markets that launch. And you can end up saying, okay, we, we absolutely at minimum have to launch in North America, but we'd really like Target, minimum plus uh, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And outstanding would be Target plus Asia as well. Okay. Yeah, uh, so that, there's lots that's of a great places where that kind it. of thing shows yeah.
0: up. Because there's another layer of things that would happen to for that level of international, right. exposure, etc. So it seems like you know landing zones are great. It's all rainbows. Everything's beautiful, sunshine. What are they not good at?
1: Yeah, rainbows and unicorns. But the unicorns take a dump. Yes. <laughs> uh, there you go. Yeah. So what are they not good at? They're not good. They're not designed to be good at managing your priorities. If you think about it. Uh, don't try to manage priority in a landing zone per se. It has something to say about it, but not very much because the entire table, that space, multi-dimensional space is success. So the landing zone by itself doesn't tell you in what order to pursue things or what to pursue in priority over something else. That's a great as point. long as you're in the yeah. landing zone, you're free to move about the cabin. So uh, – it is true. At the beginning of a project, you're going to have things starting. Their initial now is going to be maybe all over the map, because in some cases you might be able to pull from what you did in the last project and say, we already know how to do that. We can reuse code. We can reuse a piece of equipment. And in fact, uh, we're close to target already. But in many cases, you're going to be left of, of minimum thinking, you know what, we got work to do here. So at the beginning of the project, people tend to have a goal to say, let's get everything to at least minimum and then we're in the landing zone. Okay, but then once you're in there, where you go within that space is up to you. And the landing zone doesn't dictate your priorities. Something else is going to help you decide which attributes to push toward target or outstanding first versus last.
0: So it's usually better to use something else to do the prioritization, right? You've already got Yeah, through. some of the, you have the structure already to do that.
1: You you probably do. And and again, if you're a if you're a scrum user or other backlog driven uh, development team then the backlog makes a perfect place to go and do that because you're reordering that every couple of weeks as things you might go off and do those will have some traceable connection to landing zone items in many cases not all but in many cases so the, it's indirect but there's still a linkage
0: totally so you know i think about this as you know we're we're in, we're in our software engineering bubble talking about the, these kind of things. But there's there's other uses for landing zones that, that are outside of that, right? I mean, I, I was just thinking while we are talking, I, I could see this be for city planners or for, you know, s- some kind of civic mm-hmm. project that somebody was doing, right? But, you know, even, even some personal examples, right?
1: Yeah, and the typical use is for a big product or a large-scale project. Often these things end up nested. Uh, but yeah you can you can use these and in one of the more pragmatic applications I've ever seen, uh, when my daughters were trying to decide on colleges, you know, they got inundated with email and regular mail from schools all over the place who wanted them to spend a ridiculous amount of money to its end. and it became almost paralysis by choice, right? There's so many choices they they just you know you deer in the headlights kind of look. So one of the things I suggested that they both did was to stop and think about what success looks like here and give me a dozen or fewer attributes. Now, do you care how big the city is the college is in? Do you care how big the college is? Do you care how far it is from the house? I mean, I went to school because it was as far as I could get from Los Angeles and still stay inside the California State University system. So uh, that was <laughs> for me, distance from home was important. <laughs> Get out of Dodge. That's right. But everybody's got their own priorities. So uh, it could be public or private. It could be uh, all sorts of things. So what really matters here? And then you get that kind of a, a framework around making the decision. You get some first order disqualification. And then you get a way to start judging goodness within that, saying these are the schools that would be most successful versus least, and now we can get down to some other decision criteria among that shorter list.
0: Sure. I mean, that and
1: my sense. wife and I actually use this when we talked about changing houses. What do we want? And a lot of people have these, and we hear – you see articles written about it in your conversations about what's the school system like and what kind of home appreciation is it, what's the average sale price. All these other things might be important to you. And writing that down, even in an informally constructed landing zone, might have some benefits in just everyday life.
0: Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean the, the big decisions have – and you, particularly if you get if – if it's you and your wife talking about something, then you might have completely different rows – <laughs> yeah, that you decide. Yeah,
1: it, it is. Know. Yeah, and it, you know, in in both work life and home life, in real life. That discussion about what is success is one of the real benefits of all this because you get people to express widely differing opinions where the florid terms we use like state-of-the-art usability at the beginning of a project, everybody says, yeah, that's what we need. But if we had my magic flashlight to illustrate the thought balloons above their head, you would (laughs) see that everybody's thought balloon is radically different, even though they were all nodding to the same vague phrase of, yeah, state-of-the-art usability. Yeah, no, so that discussion can be really important to have up front.
0: Well, you've convinced me. I'm going to try it. I've got. I've, I I am not short on projects in this COVID environment. So, that, what's the next priority, honey? Here's the list of. Here's my rows your, of things, and this for your next homebrew. Right. Exactly. Oh yeah. There you go. The minimum requirements yeah. are. It has to yeah, taste good, first of all.
1: That's ABV and density and yeah.
0: Can't be an IPA. Can't be no no. If, if you're going to have any of it, so if I'm
1: going to taste it, yeah. <laughs> so no let's hunk. let's talk about
0: let's talk about the evolution of a landing zone. The, the definition of success, success, certainly in a project or in a big program, can change, right? What what are some of the things that can change that that forces you to go back to the go back to the zone?
1: Yeah, the the forces changing success will vary from project to project. It tends I think it tends to be worse today than it was, say, twenty or thirty years ago. We we are in a more complex, interconnected, interdependent environment. And with more degrees of freedom out there that we can't control, we end up getting hit with more change to what's going to be successful. Pace of change just seems to be perpetually increasing. Indeed. So we have changes to landing zones and success definition from things like stakeholders who come and go. Uh, You can have a partner show up midway through or depart, and somebody you thought was going to be in this game with you is no longer is, but somebody else is taking their place. So that changes because now they've got their own perceptions for success. And even if you keep the same people in the project as stakeholders, they change their minds because they've got their own uh, sort of turbulent environments. So their preferences could change. Their needs could change. Your market conditions could change. A competitor could do something and have more or less success in a launch than you thought they would. A new competitor could show up. Somebody could make a regulatory change that benefits or hinders you. Uh, There could be a merger or acquisition. All sorts of things will come in that will say, all right, uh, we could end up having to change something. And those changes will get reflected in anything from a difference in a target, a numerical target and minimum target outstanding, maybe the minimum goes one way or the other, your target might move. Or it could be that whole rows appear or disappear because that attribute no longer matters or something new does.
0: Right. Yeah, all, th- that all makes total sense because, you, 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 you know, in this marketplace, you know, uh, people are rediscovering themselves, trying to figure out how to reposition themselves, just, you know, even in just the COVID environment, right? How do we go out? And so the success definition for what somebody's building right now might change because, oh yeah, you know, certainly.
1: Well, I you would know. be startled if it didn't, because it seems like COVID is affecting a lot of people in kind of polarized ways. Either business has evaporated or a lot of people are going absolutely crazy with demand. Yes. You know, the hand sanitizer toilet paper kind of phenomenon is out there. And the rest of us are are hoping for business someday in a recovery when people actually leave their homes again. Right. So, uh, yeah, I would say that there is a tremendous amount of flux in success definition. And in that sense, this podcast, I think, is perfectly timed for people to stop and, and say, let's let's put a lasso around some of this and figure out what's true today.
0: Yeah. What can we really engineer as success? What does it make sense? Yeah. What does
1: it mean? Because, you know, we might've thought we understood, you probably didn't, but you might've thought you understood what success is before COVID. Now maybe we've got even more evidence that, no, we, we didn't really know. And we certainly don't know now.
0: Sure. I mean, you know, the, I, I just keep thinking about things like, you know, we've talked about in, in previous podcasts, this idea of rework, right? So, so certainly, certainly, you know, you have to stay current on the definition of success or, or you get hit with a ton of rework that has to kind of, you know, it's almost a reset the organization might do on a project. Or, or you could yeah. have, you know, even even to the worst extent, right, when, when you talked about kill switch, right, you can have outright failure from, an, from some out-of-date definition that everybody worked towards and nobody kept it current.
1: Right. And without knowing what those are, you have zombie projects that are – the funding stays, right? And people just keep marching on to something that is actually dead on arrival in the marketplace. And we knew this eight – we could have known this eight or 12 months before launch because we'd already tripped a kill switch or two.
0: Right. Isn't that the old Windows ME excuse?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and I've seen a lot of projects where yeah. delays, schedule delays in, say, a generational project, right, you've got this release date, and it's starting to slip forward, which is actually going below minimum, right? You're you're beyond the latest possible release date, and it's going the wrong direction. And at some point, you run into a kill switch of the next project is actually, that's a different team, and they're on track. So your market window keeps shrinking. You keep getting, or disappeared, yeah yeah it just disappears, and you don't know this, so then you end up releasing something that's got a a three month window before the next generation is ready to go and that's silly, yeah
0: sure so let's get let's let's get to the the sort of the last thing on my list to talk about today, and it's a bit of the elephant in the room we we talked a little bit about it at, at, at the beginning of this podcast, but uh, I'm guessing some of the listeners are thinking. Why don't you just use OKRs? They can do the same thing. You know, the objectives and key results are used to set strategies and goals for a particular period of time, like maybe a quarter or a half a year or a year. And and they're often for the organization, but can be for teams or individuals. People can write them for for, for that lower level of hierarchy. So, in practice, OKRs and landings, they can be used together, yes, or separately.
1: Yeah, yeah. It is kind of interesting that OKRs came from Grove at Intel, and landings ones also came from. Intel. I can't claim to have invented the landing zone concept. I got there just as as the two guys who did invent this were launching it, and I helped. But the original definition was theirs. And uh, I think it's kind of interesting that both these tools came out of that same culture at slightly different times. Uh, The spread of landing zones in the OKR-saturated environment was really quick. Now, why is that? They add landing zones add some unique value and capability over OKRs. they don't necessarily displace them. But I also would say it is not at all necessary to be using OKRs in order to use landing zones. A lot of people just use landing zones and get along fine.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: So uh, it's fine. As you say, the 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 OKR approach, three to five of these things, and they tend to be very broad, very simple, they're they're sometimes not as quantified as they should be. Right. If you okay. read John Doerr's book and things like that, he'll he'll speak in pretty good terms from his half decade or so at Intel on what he learned about OKR use. And they can be done well or done poorly like most of these things. But uh, it's quite easy to see how an OKR for launching our gaming system this year as a corporate level organizational OKR would have key results around a few things in there. And then something like uh, market enablement or that hardware row in the OKR, the key results for having the hardware ready to go, well, gosh, that ready to go thing might be rich enough to warrant its own landing zone of 12 to 18 rows to say, what the heck does that mean? And where are we in, in getting that done? So in, in
0: general, you would say OKRs are simpler. They're, they're more of a strategic thing at, the, at a high level.
1: They can be. They nest like landing zones, and they generally – you don't want to write that many OKRs. The the best practice is three to five, right? Landing zones have 12 to 18 rows, so you've got a little more space. Sure. And you can nest OKRs, you can nest landing zones, so there's a lot of parallels. And one other thing I think is is maybe mildly uh, reminiscent is that a lot of people score OKRs. There's no official – one way to do this, but a lot of people score OKRs on a four-point scale, where zero means we got nowhere. 0.5 is, eh, we did a little. 1.0 is we did what we thought we would. And back at Intel, we even had a 1.25, which is, yeah, you exceeded expectations. Hmm, That was usually tied to some bonus. Now, that is mildly reminiscent of the kind of kill switch minimum target outstanding that's in the landing zone. So there are some conceptual similarities there, too. Well, that makes
0: sense. I mean, and I could see, I mean, you you would actually have, you know, a consistent scale at an OKR level. You might have, I, w- I would think, in, inside of a landing zone, you could actually have different measurement mechanisms, right?
1: Different- yeah, you do, right? Because if you, if you score... Your OKRs with 0.51 and 1.25, you would generally score all of them that way, no matter what the topic was, and you'd have to do the translation to assign the score, which can get kind of political. Was that a 1.0? If management's feeling benevolent on that day and there's enough money to pay bonuses, maybe it's a 1.25 if they can squidge a few things in the definition. Or if they're feeling uh, a little angry and disappointed, then they'll score it slightly differently because they can bend it. Well, if you do this right in the quantification, the landing zone is going to be a bit more objective in the scoring. Because if you're talking about dollars or square millimeters or whatever it is, then the measurements tend to be pretty precise. Sure.
0: Well, awesome, sir. Um, I think that's all the time we have today. It's really educational conversation. This is really, you know, really helpful, both, both some technical and personal kind of stories here. A lot of great user experiences you shared with us. Thanks so much for taking the time and walking through this with us. Um, Pleasure. I, any, I would say any if, you're listening, here? Any, any, yeah, any if you're
1: listening to this, uh, you don't need corporate permission to go and try this. You don't need even the participation of a large number of people around you. It's uh, it's pretty simple to trial this on something within your organization's low cost, low risk to go off and, and do this. I believe you'll end up having some conversations. because Now, if you know what success is, the exercise of writing down a landing zone is trivial. But I, I suspect you're going to find at least some areas where you don't really know. And as you start shopping some ideas around asking questions, uh, you're going to have some conversations that are pretty interesting, maybe even difficult, but they're guaranteed worth the investment.
0: Well, that's cool. I mean, you know, I think we talked about, you know, the, the various input levels you can have. You can even have a single person be the hero in, in this situation, right? Someone that thinks about something and says, wow, that was, that's really a good ad. We got to put that in here somewhere. So, you can,
1: you know, that's really create cool. that focus. Give your teams the autonomy, and if you've been struggling with things like we never know when we have to uh, uh, escalate a decision, give this a try. And because if you can get everybody, including upper management, to agree on what success is, now you've got freedom to go and and move at flank speed, making every decision you want to within that space without having to wait for permission anywhere.
0: Perfect. Your your Southwest Airlines analogy. Move about the cabin.
1: Yep. Free to move about the cabin. I love it. Perfect. Thank you, sir. Just don't open the door to the outside. That's, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yes, sir. I will will adhere to that. Yeah. So with that, we are going to be out of here. Um, Be sure to tune in again for another episode of Inspect and Adapt, the Constructs podcast. Until then, this has been our, this has been Mark Griffin as your host, as you have um, humbly listened to me over the, over the last 23 podcasts. Liz Ostaszewski has been our audio engineer and Devin Musgrave is our producer If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and apparently leaking soon Amazon Music Audible, wherever you normally find us. If you have comments or like to talk to Eric about this concept or talk with one of our practitioners, or you have ideas for future podcasts, reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. We'd love to hear from you. Keep staying safe out there, everybody. Have a great next sprint.